Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we review another year to remember or forget, and our in-house experts preview the economic, political and corporate outlook for the UK, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Ross Dalzell, Head of Customer Business Relationships, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. And we're going to do a bit of a wrap up and what we like to call the round table. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, Will, let's just have a little chat about last week. Anything going on that we should be aware of? <laughs> There's a few things going on, Nikki. I mean, yeah, it's quite busy, isn't it? A busy run into the year. Well, just when everyone wants to relax. But uh, I mean, I think the news out of South Africa so far has seemed to confirm that this latest uh, variant will outcompete the Delta strain. However, what we saw last week from markets, we saw a sort of sharp rally in kind of risk assets, stocks and so on, that kind of corresponded to the growing sense that uh, Omicron could come with a potentially lower than feared disease burden. But as we always say, like caution is really warranted here. The data sets are still small and volatile. And as we've warned, there's still sort of really scope for the the epidemiological tea leaves to tell quite a different story uh, once more information rolls in. But from an investor put standpoint, which is really what we care about, obviously, it's, you know, first, well, there's probably two points. First, if Omicron continues to demonstrate the characteristics that I've just talked about, highly virulent, but with a milder disease burden, uh, we should still expect a significant short-term blow to certain types of activity. Now, some of that activity will be cancelled altogether. You know, we Christmas parties that were cancelled, we we're not going to hold them in March or whenever. But some will either just show up a little bit later than planned or, as we've seen before, spill over into kind of like goods demand. Second, the extra virulence could, again, put significant additional strain on some of the countries running those zero COVID strategies. China is a good example of a country that's been very successful in stamping out outbreaks early, keeping infection rates like extremely low for much of the last couple of years. Combine that with a more draconian approach to, with a more, uh, you know, tr- transmissible strain and add in China's importance to many of the world's goods supply chains. And, and you can see like why many at the moment are focusing on the inflationary potential of this latest variant. So as suggested by the UK and others this, this week, I think it's going to be a, uh, you know, an awkward and constrained affair this Christmas, business as usual, I guess. Okay, well, let's get into the business of checking out the rear view mirror and um, perhaps polishing the crystal ball somewhat. So Ross, let's, let's hear from the world of business. Let's start with lessons learned, the rearview mirror. What was, in your mind, the most important lesson for 2021 in, in the world of business banking? Yes, thanks, Nikki. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought to talk through kind of lessons from the last year, it might be best by starting with a story, actually, something that I kind of saw recently, and it, it just kind of talked to me a lot about kind of what we've all learned. So this is a, a fabulous business. They're called um, Direct Trade Bags. They're one of our customers. 
They're based up in Milton Mowbray in the Midlands, for people who know that part of the world. And Direct Trade Bags, they're basically a supplier of merchandising materials to large retailers. So they produce bags for life for the big supermarkets. They produce things like T-shirts for sales and things like that. And clearly when COVID struck, particularly um, in 2020, they were completely wiped out by that because retail basically stopped. And so their business basically stopped. And they had a couple of choices then. They could try and put the business on stasis. They could have used the various government support schemes that were out there, things like bounce back loans and furlough scheme to basically try and just weather the storm out and put the business on stasis. But they weren't sure they would survive um, through that and they didn't really want to do it. Now, amazingly, the founder of the business also owns a small healthcare company and produced things like hand gels and other healthcare products. And so what he realized was he could make a huge pivot with um, direct trade bags. He could basically move some of the people who worked in that business over to his healthcare firm to boost production. And then they could go out to all the retailers they supplied um, and say, look, you're going to need hand gel and hand gel dispensers in all your shops. You're going to need all this kind of various healthcare equipment to be able to reopen. So we can supply you with that equipment using the relationships they already had. Not only that, but they realized actually their customers in normal times were merchandising companies, companies that help these big retailers run um, big sales and big campaigns, and they have the relationship with the end retailer. So what Greg and his team could do is they could help give business to those merchandising businesses that, of course, were also completely paused and stopped and say, look, we're going to pivot to this. You can help us distribute and, and build those relationships with those retailers and leverage those relationships you have. In doing so, they were able to not just save the couple of hundred jobs that direct trade bags had, but they were able to save uh, jobs right across that whole supply chain. I think probably thousands of jobs across that whole supply chain. And to me, that just kind of spoke to a whole bunch of lessons from the last year or so. The first being never bet against a business owner. I think people who start their own businesses are unbelievably smart at finding ways through even the most difficult times. And that was just one of those stories that kind of really brought home what a courageous and smart thing to do. Secondly, business is all about relationships, no matter the scale. And if you think about, imagine the loyalty Direct Trade Bags now has from its customers up and down its supply chain, given that it saved their businesses by operating the way it did and showing the creativity it did. That's given them a huge springboard as they've gone back to their normal business model now because of that depth of loyalty. So kind of business is always about people and about those relationships. And then thirdly, cash flow is king. Direct trade bags on the whole supply chain had to pull off some really smart stuff to figure out how they would deal with products they already had on order, how they'd get extra financing in order to boost production, how they'd buy themselves the time they needed to. So that kind of really smart conversation about cash flow and real options in their back pocket is what enabled them to make that pivot. And I think that those three lessons are going to probably stand a pretty good test of time as we get into 2022 and beyond as well. What a fantastic story. And and just, you know, hearing hearing that kind of sort of dynamism to to pivot like that, just just fantastic. So what about your prediction for the year ahead? What what are you seeing there? Um yeah, no, so in terms of predictions for twenty twenty two, I mean predictions is a monk's game, isn't it? But let, let me have a let me have a crack. And actually let me start by rather than making a prediction myself, I'll tell you what some of our customers think. So we at Barclays run a thing called Eagle Labs. Eagle Labs are a network of shared working spaces and accelerators we have across the UK that help entrepreneurial businesses come in and work and base themselves and, and, and grow and learn and network with one another. And we've got thousands of members of that Eagle Lab network. And we recently surveyed them and asked them what did they think was going to happen in 2020. 
2022. And their view was pretty bullishly positive, actually. They believed on average their turnover would grow by 40% next year. Nearly two thirds of them thought they were going to be more successful next year than they were this. So Business, small business owners generally are feeling pretty positive about next year. Clearly, that will vary a bit from sector to sector. And this survey happened before Omicron started to kick in. So I'm sure that shifted opinions around a little bit. But generally speaking, they were feeling pretty bullish. And I think that's true in most of the other surveys I see as well. So overall, I would kind of back that up. I think we're feeling pretty good that the small business sector and the economy generally will probably grow uh, reasonably well next year. I think there's a but there, though which is, I would think through 2022, we're going to have these ups and down moments. We're going to have these moments like we're having now where we have to lift the gas. We have to make decisions because a variant emerges or there's some issue or another. And therefore, I think referring to my previous answer, that point on cash flow is going to be really key. I think the businesses, whether they're small ones or really big ones, who have a really strategic plan around cash flow, who have ways to either weather out storms when they hit, because they might, but equally who can really come into the market quickly and grow fast when those market opportunities come back. I think they're the businesses that are going to be most successful. So yeah, a good year, hopefully next year, I think another year of growth, but a year where really smart cash flow management is going to be key to success. Yeah. And, and your colleague, James Binns, joined us a couple of weeks ago talking there about supply chains, etc. often at a more macro level. But as you said, it's clearly the focus at across the spectrum of, of businesses and Lovely to hear that that optimism and dynamism that you see, whether it's from your startups that we see in our Eagle Labs all the way up to your, your most successful customers and clients in the business bank. You know, great, great to hear that there is that optimism, which, of course, feeds the rest of the economy, consumers and, and others. So thank you for that. Fingers crossed that, that this comes to pass. And I'm next going to turn to Olivia. I suspect you're on here not only to give us that rear view mirror, but to keep Will and the rest of us in check, given there's quite a lot going on in the world of UK politics, most of which is better left uncommented on. But uh, perhaps you can share with us, what's your lesson from the year just gone? Yeah, of course, you know, speaking of events just gone, I'm, I'm sure one particularly juicy lesson could be about scandal through 2021 and Teflon Boris or, or not potentially, but, you know, we should stick to the big topics on this podcast, um, <laughs> of course. So I think, you know, the thing that I'd like to call out is the pretty seismic shift we've seen in the government's approach to intervention. I mean, that's been pretty standout, both the scope and the scale of government reach, you know, would have seemed pretty unimaginable pre-pandemic or pre-2020 even. And I think, you know, I can run through a few case studies to illustrate the point, starting with the most obvious one, you know, the furlough scheme. We shouldn't forget, you know, that's been the biggest UK peacetime intervention uh, in the jobs market, directly supporting the incomes of, I think it was over 9 million workers at its peak. And it it now looks like it's going to cost taxpayers over 69 billion uh, overall. So it's a pretty dramatic, but, you know, understandably justifiable response to a jobs recession like any, not like any other in a UK history. But I think, you know, the idea that that sheer scope of the furlough to potentially prop up jobs that may have otherwise been unviable is a, is a particularly interesting point to touch on. In other words, you know, the government could have offered sector specific furlough support for only those viable jobs and left those with no future alone, you know, leaving the movement of employees from failing industries to more successful ones, but it chose not to. So I think my point here is to say, you know, we are right to take pause on just the extent of the generosity and far-reaching nature of the furlough scheme opted by the government, because it could have been a very different story. And the government really demonstrated that 
on this occasion, they haven't been afraid to dig into essentially, you know, bottomless public purse, it feels like, on this occasion. But, you know, one small build on that is I'd say, you know, the furlough scheme isn't anecdotal for this sort of theme of government reach. You know, if we skip forward to the energy crisis that began to unfold in sort of the second half of this year, we've seen a pretty interesting dynamic play out through government subsidy to support impacting firms. And this includes billion pound bailouts for energy firms, you know, like Bulb at the moment uh, is under discussion, which is at real risk of collapse. And the Chancellor has been pretty clear that, you know, he doesn't want firms to think that government's willing to write blank checks at the first sign of trouble. But these bailouts and this, this state intervention has still gone ahead. So I think that's pretty seismic in terms of where the government started and, and when they've come to. But if I could be a little bit cheeky and just touch on a second lesson, I know you asked for one, but but I promise this, do promise this is this is related and I can't not talk about tax. But you know, the fact we've seemingly seen the Conservative shift becoming a high tax party over the course of uh sorry a low tax uh, party over the course of 2021 even to a high tax party now let's not forget the levels of personal tax under this government are their highest since the war and obviously we also saw the conservatives break that triple lock pledge earlier this year but the reason for mentioning it and you know i've spoken on this before is that when taken together with that government intervention or government reach it does suggest a very distinct shift or even lurch to the center for the conservatives and I think this structural political alignment, we've all realignment, we've all probably seen coming for a while now, perhaps triggered with those red wall dynamics of the last election. But I really think this Conservative government has certainly sort of cemented its place as a centre ground party at the moment, eating uh, much of Labour's lunch. So, yeah, very interesting year for us from that perspective. OK, and what about the look ahead? What do you predict? What's going to happen? Sure, well, you know, I don't want to sort of directly contradict myself, you know, and I did just suggest that 2021 was a year of the death knell of traditional conservatism and a shift to the centre. But what I didn't say was that was necessarily here to stay. So I think I would say that looking to 2022, we might see a very different story there. You know, there are many factions of the the Conservative Party and even the government who don't sit comfortably in this new sort of middle ground they occupy, not least the Chancellor, who's been pretty clear about his sort of fiscal standpoint. And I think we might see a slight resetting of the equilibrium back towards sort of true blue ideals if these factions do win out. And to give a, a relevant example, we've seen uh, some reporting in the last few weeks that the Chancellor, who has made quite clear he's been a little bit uneasy with recent tax increases, seeing them as questions of political necessity rather than political choice. He's been speaking about the fact that he's looking at cutting taxes potentially from next year. That could be income tax, that could be VAT, it could even be inheritance tax, albeit, you know, that would obviously be quite controversial. But to our knowledge, he has instructed his department to draw up detailed plans to reduce the tax burden. Now, it, it might be some time before these plans bear any fruit, not necessarily 2022, but I think the direction of travel there is, is certainly uh, indicated. And just to be sort of cheeky again and add a, a second prediction, but only, only because uh, <laughs> taking liberties here, left, right and centre, but only because I know it's one of Will's favourite topics. So, and that's productivity. You know, I've spoken on this podcast before, but, you know, I can't really stress enough the importance this government attaches, well, and every government before it, to sort of tackling the UK's uh, productivity gap once and for all. And we saw the Conservatives at the recent uh, party conference talk about the broken economic model and their new economic vision, the sort of high-skilled, high-wage economy. And I think that's very much wrapped up in the idea of boosting productivity in the UK. I'll give a you know gross oversimplification, which I'm sure we'll be horrified by, but... <laughs> You know, the idea being that if workers get better jobs and they earn more money, greater productivity will flow from that. So 
I think, you know, in 2021, government set out its sort of theory on productivity and looking to 2022, I think all of us would hope that we begin to see that theory be put into practice. I'm, I'm starting to feel super guilty. Ross, you stuck to the, uh, <laughs> stuck to the one of each. Uh, feel free if you want to, uh, <laughs> to, to ch- yeah, chime in with it. With... It's all right. I, I'm, I'm not bright enough to think of two answers to both. So oh, right. no. <laughs> <laughs> rubbish, rubbish. Will, so... They're hard acts to follow this. Well, I know. Anyway, what would you share about what you've learned this year, whether it's market land or economics or even personally, feel free. A a mixture of all of the above. It was, uh, but yeah, Olivia's sort of uh, front run there because I I am going to give it a weird rant about productivity or something that I learned this year about productivity, which I think was important. And and as you know, like uh, as Olivia says, it's everything at the economic level. It's everything for from the perspective of living standards improvements, and it's. uh, it's everything also from our kind of parochial expect- uh, you know, perspective. It's everything in terms of long-term portfolio returns. That's what drives, uh, you know, the returns that we offer to our clients. So I think understanding why the world has been a little bit becalmed on this front. It's not just the UK. It is the world. The UK has suffered particularly badly from this front, though. That's mega important. Now, the gloomy interpretation, and this is again the global story beyond uh, what Olivia was just referring to with regards to the UK, is that the, the products, productivity surge we had in the last few hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, it's a blip. It's a productivity kind of spasm in amongst, you know, millennia of horrible stagnation. Now that we've discovered, you know, electricity, indoor plumbing, and other kind of game-changing you know, innovations, uh, we, we kind of return to the stagnation that had been our lot for the thousands of years up to the, you know, the 18th century. And so, you know, you get this gloomy outlook. However, you know, I, I sort of increasingly think, uh, you know, that misunderstands what fuels productivity in the last couple of years, I think is quite good evidence here. So one famous contemporary physicist argues that what makes us unique and ultimately i think i've already bored you all of this on this uh, on this podcast but uh, but he also and ultimately makes us capable not just of having planetary but you know cosmic significance is our ability to generate something called explanatory knowledge you know the incredible growth of this store of understanding helps explain why our lives today with you know, food and goods arriving at our doorstep from all over the world, 100 ton chunks of metal, uh, you know, speeding through the sky and fingertip access to, you know, all the world's entertainment, bitchiness, whatever we want to get our hands on, that that would have seemed completely magical, you know, only a couple of hundred years ago. So I think continuing to, you know, the important point here from this year's perspective, and it sort of melts into kind of, I guess, what I, what I would hope about this year, for myself particularly, is that you know, central to continuing to unlock that near unlimited power of, you know, this cognitive superpower of ours is the ability to error correct. Mm. And this is this mix of, I think, you know, what do you call it? Uh, curiosity and kind of evidence-based challenge. Uh, and that, again, go back to the first industrial revolution, my other obsession, uh, that's seen as central to the industrial revolution's birth in this country. So the scientific revolution uh, of the 16th and 17th centuries took a very specific hue in this country and seeped into the world beyond the sciences, helping to fuel this kind of sustained productivity and living standard takeoff that's doubled global you know, life expectancy, among many other things. 
But without these intellectual foundations, born of curiosity, shaped and hardened by challenge, you know, the medical miracles of the last two years just couldn't have come to our rescue. Uh, and this, if you think about it, is also the more optimistic interpretation of where productivity goes next. The, the point is that the, the causal power of this growing, uh, increasingly codified store of explanatory knowledge took, took a while to gather, you know, millennia, in fact. However, the inference is that we're just really getting started. So investing in a sense, and here's my pitch, is to argue that in spite of all our shortcomings that are often on display, you know, and all of these this sort of anonymous bile all over, all over the sort of social media and so on, we're still a sort of spectacular development in the long history of the universe. And we're only just starting to tap into our capabilities. But the but, I think that's the important point of this year, uh, is that the media echo chambers with you know, the little citadels of comfortable agreement we've retreated into the last few years, reinforced by lockdowns and social distancing and so on, they're the antithesis in a way of everything that has brought us to this point, the power of the tradition of criticism. Uh, and that I think needs to be rediscovered and cherished. Like I say, not just that anonymous bile you see on social media, but the idea that uh, there's something a civilised criticism. That sounds like a personal plea, yes, but, but really well, well said. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, lo- I love the optimism, right? Because that really does that productivity almost exponential it's sounding like it could be which mm-hmm. seems like a, a fun place to be well too right <laughs> yeah. and and to to give you the other side of the coin having looked in the rearview mirror what you learnt, what are you looking towards in 2022 what do you think is going to happen You know, I hate predictions, so I'm going to wriggle around. (laughs) And and, and given you're an economist, (laughs) anyone. Exactly. So so two hands, all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think one interesting aspect of this last year is that as the global economy has kind of rapidly recovered, and really, you know, over the last couple of years, the, the recovery from the depths of 2020 has been, you know, sensational. As it's recovered rapidly this year, the world has slugged more monetary medicine down its throat. And this basically because expected and incoming inflation moved more than expected and current interest rates. So the real inflation adjusted cost of borrowing continued to fall, even as the economy became less in need of the extreme monetary medicine that helped keep the show on the road back in 2020. So next year, we should see the beginning of a reversal here as some of you know, there's two things. Some of the inflationary pressure will, at, should at some stage, subside over the course of the year, just a little bit. Uh, we don't know how much. But central banks get serious also about raising interest rates and unwinding some of that um, quantitative easing. And that should help blow away a little bit of the speculative froth in capital markets that we're seeing around the right. Ra- I'm looking at you, intrinsically valued cryptocurrencies, of course. But... <laughs> Also, really, you could see substantial changes in the leaderboard in asset markets. And as we've been banging on about for for some time now, the last decade could really provide you with a very poor playbook about what does well for the sort of, you know, the decade ahead. But really, the question for me for 2022, the really interesting one, just sort of, you know, broadly, because it's got massive implications, is 2022 and beyond. And it's, I think... The most important question to try and answer is how different, difficult, how different are we to our 2019 selves? How have our attitudes to 
work, saving, risk, all of that being sort of shaped by this, by the sort of rolling tragedy of the last couple of years. Now, some of the changes to our preferences and incentives may be subtle at the individual level, but when they're aggregated up, they become you know, more substantial, of course. And I think as the you know, as a South American leader remarked early on, this really was the first world war. To, and to that extent, like there can have been few events in modern times that have shaped our collective preferences to the same extent, to the same degree. And I think we're going to find out a lot more about that next year. And I'm really curious to find out, to be honest. And maybe we haven't changed at all, but um, <laughs> I don't think so. And I think the longer it goes on, yeah. and Omicron coming is another example, the more these go on, the more they sort of shape our collective risk appetite more permanently. Well, and even, you know, the examples Ross used where companies shape-shifting, hard to think that they would go back to just doing what they had originally done before the pandemic hit, right? That kind of shift in approach, but also the knowledge and, and the experience and the new customer bases and the opportunities that that's then opened up for them. I would imagine that that's here to stay. I think that's exactly right. You know, you've seen in some cases, not all, but in some cases, businesses that probably could have done certain things years earlier, you know, moved into a digital channel or shellfish companies that sell to supply the, the restaurant sector on a wholesale basis, something realised they can home deliver at a much, much higher margin, or retailers who had stores and realised they can now um, retail digitally, globally, reduce their trade cycles down and, have, frankly, reduce their rates as well. You know, you've seen a whole bunch of businesses make a step that maybe they wouldn't have made had they not been in an impossible position. And now that it's made, they realise actually there's huge opportunity there. And as you say, some of that's never going to revert. I'm with Will. I don't know what the new equilibrium is, but I'm pretty sure it's not the old one. And I think it'll be really interesting to see that kind of work its way through sector by sector, business by business, country by country over the next year or so. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm sure at this time next year, we'll have you back to throw your predictions back in your faces. But with that, Olivia, Ross, well, thank you so much. And we look forward to having you back at another roundtable in due course. And for those listeners and subscribers that don't hear us again until 2022, have a great one. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.